G'day and thanks for tuning in to the Outpost Church podcast. We are in a series called How Did We Get Here? And it's really about looking back to the early church and then comparing to other times in history and going, how, when we started like that, did we get here? And in particular, we're looking at the last 504 years or thereabouts and some of the key moments and um, why they matter to the global church today. Hope it helps. John Wesley famously said, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Anyone here feel inspired? How about overwhelmed? (laughs) The burden of such responsibility of doing so much good. But we're going to focus on this man that um, said this quote, John Wesley, and focus on his life. We are um, at the end of a series called How Did We Get Here? And we have been looking at the early church. We're going to have a look a bit at um, Acts chapter 6 today. And we're looking at some of the amazing things that were going on when the church was birthed. And then we're having a look at different moments through history because we can look back on what was and what is and just say, how did we get here? When something started so amazing, how did we ever arrive at this point? And we're looking through history and particularly around the time of the Reformation. And we've had a look at how uh, we as part of the Uniting Church Uh, how we were formed and we're looking at the traditions the three different denominations that came together to make up the uniting church back in 1977 Uh, we looked at uh, presbyterianism last week a couple weeks before that we were looking at congregationalism and we're having a look at methodism and the founder of methodism somewhat reluctant founder in some ways uh, john wesley and that particular quote of doing all that good uh, is one that he he lived out, uh, and I believe he lived it out right throughout his life. Um, but I believe that he was endowed with a power partway through his life that enabled him to be so much more effective in doing exactly that. And so we're going to hit up uh, some of his early life um, to get a bit of the the context, but also hit up what happened in that moment where suddenly there was a shift uh, in the power in which um, he operated. You see, John Wesley was one of 19 kids. I don't know if you ever wished that you were a part of a bigger family uh, growing up, had more siblings, but he had 18 of them. And John, um, his mum, his mum was not named John. His name was John. His his mum was Susanna, and Susanna uh, was quite astounding. Obviously, to have 19 kids is something else. She homeschooled them, and she raised them in a home of religion and morals. They not only learned, uh, they not only read a lot of the Bible in English, but they actually learned the original languages. So Greek, which the New Testament was written in, and Hebrew, which the Old Testament was written in, uh, as well as Latin. They learned a bunch of other languages and memorized huge portions of scripture as well. And John went off to become a priest. So he went off to Oxford University. Uh, His brother Charles, younger brother Charles, who is perhaps the most famous hymn writer of all time, he also went uh, to, to Oxford. And, and when they were there, they started 
a group for anyone who wanted to live a holy life. And there were some pretty strict guidelines that they would follow. And they became known as the Holy Club. It wasn't a name that they chose for themselves. It was put on them by those that would you know, mock them. Um, but they wore it. Uh, they owned that particular title, became known as the Holy Club. They were also known as the Methodists, even um, at that point, because they were so methodical in the things that they did. So, for example, they would fast two entire days per week. Uh, they would also spend about three hours every afternoon reading through the scriptures together. They would spend a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time. They regularly have communion together. Uh, they not only did those things, but they also abstained from a whole bunch of stuff. They wanted to live a holy life. And they did a lot of good in the community. So a couple of examples of that, they spent a lot of time in a local prison. And the illiteracy rate um, in the whole society at that time was, was, was quite high, and particularly for those that were in prison. And so they taught a lot of prisoners to read and to write. Uh, they paid the debts of a whole bunch of prisoners as well. And they helped those that were released from prison to find employment. And with uh, the poor community, uh, they uh, supplied food, clothes, medicine, books. And they even ran a school. So they were teaching kids. Uh, so, yeah, quite remarkable the things that they achieved through this, this Holy Club. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the Holy Club didn't last. Uh, so once these guys moved on once they left Oxford University then um, yeah the Holy Club didn't continue and when uh, John was um, ordained as a priest within the, the Anglican Church or the Church of England he uh, then went off to America so he went to, to Savannah uh, in Georgia and on his voyage from England across to America uh, he had a very significant encounter with a group uh, called the Moravians. And the Moravians, the German, uh, they were just a few years into a 100-year prayer meeting, a non-stop prayer meeting that went for over 100 years. And quite a remarkable missions movement sprang out of yeah, the Moravians. And so the Moravians, they were heading over to America as well. They were going to preach to the American Indians. And um, yeah, in the process... Uh, there's this nasty storm and John Wesley fears for his life. And as this storm is happening, he's actually in a worship service with the Moravians. So the Moravians are leading it and he is yeah, freaked out of his mind, yet he sees the calmness of the Moravians, the men, the women and the children. They have this incredible peace and calmness in the midst of a literal storm. And so he asks them, you know, what is going on? What's different? What do you have that I don't have kind of thing? And um, yeah, the response was simply that they don't fear. They don't fear for their lives. Um, very, very challenging to me to hear that. Very challenging for John Wesley to hear that. And he actually was starting to doubt his own salvation. Um, anyhow, he goes over to, to Georgia and he's ministering to people that have moved from England over to uh, America. And he is, yeah ministering there and he tries to enforce the same rules of the holy club so he's trying to do the fasting two days a week and you know he's got all these different things that he's trying to put on the people and they rebel they say no um, and so john Wesley ends up leaving he is pretty bitter as he heads back to england it just seems like it's been a failure his whole time in in america and 
He continues to have these different, quite powerful interactions with Moravians. And he, he says to one, uh, I was indeed fighting continually, but not conquering. I fell and rose and fell again. And then there's a moment, so he's back in, in England, and there's a moment that he describes in his journal in, in the following way. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah, hey? It's uh, quite a well-known story, like that phrase, heart strangely warmed. is quite well-known amongst the evangelical church right around the world. Uh, John Wesley experienced something of the Holy Spirit, an assurance of salvation, and things shifted from that point on. And this is the point that I was referring to earlier, where he was doing a lot of good beforehand. There were a lot of good things that he was a part of, and you know, stuff that they achieved through the Holy Club uh, was quite remarkable. But what happened from this point on was even more remarkable. Uh, about this time, uh, there was a man who, was also had, who also had been a member of the Holy Club back in Oxford days. Um, and his name um, was, was George Whitfield. And, and Whitfield was preaching in the open air. And that was a big no-no back at that time. You would preach in the context of a church building, but to preach outside. Who would think of such a thing? Surely not. I mean, where did Jesus preach when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, when he preached so much of what he, he said? It um, seems to have been outside. But anyway, at that point, it was such a horrid, abominable thing to consider preaching outside. And here was this guy, George Whitfield, preaching in the open air in the city of Bristol and seeing multitudes come to faith in Christ particularly amongst the poor community. He was seeing an overwhelming response. And, and uh, he actually invited John Wesley to come and to join him in his labors and to, to preach. And um, he was reluctant initially, John Wesley, but he did say yes. And he joined him in that. And uh, he eventually took over the leadership um, of that particular movement. And so he was preaching just like Whitfield. Whitfield was quite an inspiring preacher and he preached with a lot of passion and that was part of Wesley's hesitation was just the way in which um, Whitfield would preach but also the emotional response of the, these massive crowds of people and he was concerned by the response he saw when Whitfield preached but also the response that he saw when he preached and the way they would respond is didn't fit his current categories and so these two men were, were sharing in this particular work and um, and, and doing a remarkable job. And, and Wesley's leadership meant that he, they not only continued to preach, but they started to organize societies. Um, and they eventually um, organized these groups of, of 12 that would meet in homes when they, societies became too big. And they called these groups classes. And they kept the men and the women separate. And it was actually possible for anyone uh, to become a leader of one of these groups. And they changed up the rules from this, the Holy Club quite notably. 
Uh, they would meet together once a week. It was actually designed to sit alongside a uh, just regular attendance of um, the Anglican Church. And so it was, in many ways, um, a small group. A small group that would meet, you know, in the midweek. Uh, Wesley was very conscientious to make sure that he didn't interfere with the Anglican Church. And so if he was preaching, uh, he wouldn't do it. You know, if he was doing an open-air sermon, he wouldn't conflict with the times for the, the local, um, local congregation with the Anglican Church. He would make sure that the uh, societies and the classes would meet outside of those times as well. Um, there was this real desire to honour and complement what was already happening within the Anglican Church. And these groups were um, toned down a little bit from the, the Holy Club expectations and rules. Uh, so they would meet together once a week. They would pray, they would read the Bible, they would discuss their spiritual lives, and they would collect money for charity. And these groups just exploded uh, all over the country and, in fact, all over America as well. Uh, this was a significant movement in both North America uh, and in England. And, yeah, the, one of the great gifts that John, Brins, that John Wesley brought was uh, this um, organization, this ability to yeah, divide things up and to actually see them, see them flourish as a result. We are going to focus in on Acts chapter 6. Uh, we're going to have a look at what was a, a moment of almost crisis within the church, certainly in the eyes of, of some. Uh, there was an issue and we see how it was dealt with and we see that there is a sense of order in the way that uh, things were responded to. Uh, so Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In those days... As the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So the Hellenistic and the Hebraic is just saying the Greek speaking and the um, Hebrew speaking or Aramaic speaking. Uh, so you've got the, they're all Jews at this point, uh, but some that speak Greek and some that speak you know, their native tongue as, as Jews, which is Hebrew. And there's a division. There seems to be an overlooking of the Greek-speaking widows in preference for the Hebrew-speaking widows. Verse 2. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples, which was about 5,000 or more at that point, and said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So I love it in this passage how it starts and ends with increase. So it says that in those days the disciples were increasing in number. And it ends in verse 7. And it says, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. How good. There's increase happening before this little bit of a problem. 
and there's increase that happens as the problem reaches a solution. I love it that there was um, the, actually the, the bringing of the problem to the apostles. It wasn't just chatted about amongst others and you know, it becomes this point of, of gossip and a point of contention and that hasn't got a chance to be resolved because it's not brought to people that can do something about it. I love it that it was brought. I love it that it was listened to and acted upon. How good is that? They acted upon it and they put something in place. The thing that's really stood out to me um, about this as I, as I read it is that there is something for everyone to do. And the reality for any one individual is you can't do everything, but you can do something. So for the 12 apostles, they knew that they would not be able to do the things they were called to do and add this as well. You know, it's a significant need and it would be easy just to stop everything else in order to meet this need. But they said, no, we need to continue to do what we've been called to do and we are going to appoint some others in order to do this. And it is how the body works. We all have something to contribute. And it's, it's possible for us to read and to hear about someone like John Wesley. And by the way, John Wesley, over the course of his life, preached about 40,000 sermons. 40,000 sermons. So if he was preaching one a week, so like every Sunday he's just preaching a sermon, in order to get to that tally of 40,000, he would need to preach for almost 800 years every Sunday. <laughs> if he was preaching once a day and he started the moment that he was born, you know, so like the day of his birth, if he preached his first sermon on that day, he would need to preach um, until he was over 100 years old and preach every single day. And seeing as neither of those two things um, happened, the reality for him was that he was preaching like twice a day. It was pretty much a standard approach for him preaching twice a day every day uh, for decade after decade after decade and it wasn't that all he was doing was preaching you know he organized so many things as we've discussed briefly um, it, yeah he traveled crazy distances on horseback as well uh, he wasn't someone who was in any way idle um, but the thing for us is that we can, we can look to someone like him and we can feel intimidated and like, oh man, I can't do what he did. Um, and we actually find ourselves doing nothing because we get so intimidated and overwhelmed. It's like, oh well, why would I even bother? But the reality is for each of us, we can't do everything, but we can do something. And it might be that for you, your struggle is more on trying to do everything. But the reality is you can't and you need the help of others. Or for you, it might be more a case of you feel like you have nothing to offer and it's others that have the things that are needed. But no, 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 you can do something. So whether your temptation is to think that you can do everything or that you can do nothing, the reality for you is that you can contribute something and that you are dependent upon others doing their bit. And so for each of us, let us be contributors let us be people who join in and do what we're called to do. But something really, really important as we look at this passage here is what they were looking for in people who they were, who they were going to appoint to this role um, of, of serving tables, but also just administering this, this food. They must be people who are filled with the Spirit 
and filled with wisdom. And so this, this thing that happened to John Wesley when he was like 35 years old after he was already a priest, where it seems he was filled with the Spirit. And that was his first experience of that, that assurance of salvation and being filled with the Spirit happened for him at about 35 years of age on that one particular evening. And for each of those seven men that were appointed, they were full of the Spirit and wisdom. So something preceded their action. And John Wesley did a lot of action before he received the Holy Spirit, but he was so much more effective in what he did afterwards than what he was before. You know, it's been said that the Methodist movement and the revival more broadly that happened in, in England um, at the time of John Wesley, at the time of the preaching for him and, and Whitfield, uh, it's been said that that actually stopped England from going through the same thing that France did in that era. The French Revolution was incredibly destructive and there was something similar that was brewing in England. But because of the mass conversions, because of people being transformed by the gospel of Jesus, being filled with the Spirit and living different lives, there was a very different outcome in England to what there was in France. And so the significance of John Wesley, the significance of, of what he achieved is absolutely massive. There's estimations of the current population of Methodists around the world at 30 million people <laughs> that is an absolutely huge number like when he died it was it was big uh, we actually know uh, how many British members and how many American members when he died there was 71,668 British members because Wesley would keep track of that sort of stuff like he was an organizational genius um, there were 43,265 American members so all told about 115,000 at the time of Wesley's death um, and he remained an Anglican right up to his death, an Anglican priest. Um, and yeah, he was able to achieve these remarkable things. And I believe it was because he was first and foremost filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to do the things that God was calling him to do. And for each of us, you know, it's not just a matter of like, just go out and do something. It's like, no, first let us receive from God. Let us receive his empowerment, his indwelling, his assurance of salvation. And from that place, we go and contribute the thing and the things that we are called to contribute. It's really important we get it that way around. Like in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it tells us that we are to, to put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and humility and patience. But before it tells us to put on those things, it says, it addresses us as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. So we do those things as a result of who we are because of what he's already done for us. So it starts with his gift and then it continues through our distribution of his, of his gift uh, to others. And yeah, so Wesley's life indicates this, uh, what we read about in Acts 6. I mean, these guys who were appointed to wait on tables, 
Like they did remarkable things. So Stephen, you know, it says um, in the next verse, verse 8, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. You know, he went on to become the, the first martyr, first Christian martyr. And then you had uh, Philip, who was the first teleporter, first recorded um, teleporter, uh, did amazing miracles and all sorts of stuff was going on through him, see, saw people come to faith. Um, yeah, both of these men, we have, you know, the next three chapters are, are largely devoted to what God was doing in them and, and through them. And they were just appointed to wait on tables, but they had received the Spirit and then they started doing something. And then God did immeasurably more than they could have asked or imagined. How good a simple task is that we receive God's love and then we share that with others in doing the thing that we're called to do. Not being overwhelmed and trying to do everything, but doing something so important that we just do something we are created different and that can be frustrating at times but it's so important that we just get in and do something one common reality for christy and i um, is it's like say half an hour before someone's due to arrive at our house and the thought that goes through my mind is clean and the thought that goes through christy's mind is bake and as far as hospitality goes um how much how good is it when someone prepares some food you know, for your arrival? You've got freshly baked something, something, um, or partway through your arrival, in Christie's case, you know, it's ready. You get some of the smells when you arrive and then you get to eat of it a little bit later. Um, and other times where Christie's so frustrated because she's just like, big picture, let's get something done. Let's get it, you know, clean and, and tidy. And I'm thinking detail, I'm like, let's use this to actually do something a little bit, you know, deeper clean. Um, and I can see how that would be frustrating for Christie, as I'm sure you can as well. But I want to make the most of this, you know. Uh, we are wired different ways, and it can cause conflict, but, you know, we should see the gift in each other, and that the, the sum of our parts is much greater than the individual wholes. How good that we get to be a part of this together. And I just encourage you, first and foremost, to receive the amazing gift of life that is only found through Jesus. And then to share in this amazing, amazing mission that we have of sharing the gospel, of loving people, of building uh, what it is that he calls us to build. So we're going to spend a moment praying um, Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that you are here with us right here, right now. Thank you that you've got good things in store. Thank you for the amazing sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Thank you that his perfection, his sacrifice is sufficient for us in order that we would be made holy, in order that we would be filled with your spirit and empowered to do the things that you call us to do. I pray, Lord, that we would be good receivers in that sense, that we would receive from you and would be good givers, that we would share with others. We thank you for the life of John Wesley. We pray that we would be inspired by him as we would be inspired by others and not try to copy them, not feel like we need to mimic somebody else's life, 
unless that life is Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we would see that more clearly. We would respond appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.